Amen. Good morning. Welcome again to Hillside. My name is Robbie. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Would you uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9? And today we're going to be in verses 11 through 18 in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Last week, uh, we began sort of this series within a series. We've been in the book of Ecclesiastes now for eight weeks. This is our eighth sermon in Ecclesiastes. And last week, we sort of began this little mini-series of a few messages within Ecclesiastes where Solomon is really going to start pushing on this idea of what practical wisdom looks like. It's a, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, but up to this point, we've sort of just been talking about um, what is the meaning of life. Life is meaningless without God, but now Solomon is going to talk about the difference between what is godly wisdom and what is worldly wisdom. He's really getting at the core of what wisdom is and what it is to live a life that is foolish under the sun and what it is to live a life that is glorifying to God. And so last week we looked intently into the providence of God and we noticed together that God uses, in his providence, he uses hard things in our lives to give us an eternal perspective and he also uses hard things in our lives to build godly character. It is godly wisdom then for us to know that God is providential, and then we walk in that. This week, we're going to focus again on wisdom, and we're going to ask this question. What, this is, it's just very, very practical. What does godly wisdom look like in my life? I think it's important for us to start this morning with something that I think will actually really help us to understand the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole. Ecclesiastes is not the type of book that you just keep reading until you reach the end, and then at the very end of it, you get the answer, sort of like a good mystery or a good novel. Instead, this is a book in which we keep struggling with the problems of life, we keep struggling, and we learn to trust God with our questions, even when we don't have all the answers. The chapters, or this, these chapters that we're in, sort of confront us with the limits of human knowledge. This is the Christian life. In case you haven't been living the Christian life for very long, let me help you for a second. This is the Christian life. We struggle and we learn to trust God with questions, even when we do not have all the answers. I've said this before, but our Christian life is not linear. Some days are up, some days are down, some days are backwards Hopefully, we're moving forward sometimes. Our lives as believers are not just about how or what we get in the end. And sometimes we live that way as believers. Our lives as believers are also about what we are becoming along the way. Ecclesiastes is really doing the same thing. What it's doing for us is it's asking the question, what are you doing in your life along the way? And, and is God in control of all of it? Who are you trusting? If we were to title chapters 7 through 10 of Ecclesiastes, last week we studied chapter 7, this week we'll be in chapter 9. If we were to title chapters 7 through 10 as one section, here's the title I would give it. I would call it The Case Against Self-Sufficiency. The Case Against Self-Sufficiency, which... And I think many of us, myself included, really struggle to believe this, but this is actually a gift from God. 
This is God's gift to us to see that we are not self-sufficient people. Chapter 7 through 10, again and again, they tell us that what we need to know, and this is what we need to know as believers, you are not in control. God is. Even when you can't see it, God is in control. And this is the core of godly wisdom. And this is something that I think we'll learn today in very practical ways from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 11 through 18. Before we get there, though, what I think would be important for us to do is I'd like for us to define godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom, just for a second. Just so that we're all on the same page, what is godly wisdom? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 19 through 20 says this, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So, based on these verses here, I think it's clear, and we can clearly state that there is a difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom, right? The wisdom of this world is folly with God, these verses say. Okay, so then what is godly wisdom? Godly wisdom is from God and it honors God. It is the key for us to understand, or it is key for us to understand that godly wisdom starts with the fear of God and it results in a holy life lived out in us. What worldly wisdom is, just um, for us to work them against each other, on the other hand, is it's not concerned at all with honoring God, but with pleasing our own desires. That would be worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is tricky because with worldly wisdom, we may become educated. We may become street smart. We may have common sense that enables us to play the world's game successfully. So worldly wisdom seems effective. The big difference between the two, though, is that worldly wisdom may help in our day-to-day lives, but ultimately... God's wisdom enables you and I to prepare ourselves for eternity. With godly wisdom, what we do is we trade earthly values for biblical, eternal values. We recognize that we are citizens of another kingdom and we make choices that reflect that allegiance. And when the world's wisdom clashes with God's wisdom, godly wisdom always chooses what doesn't make sense to our world. Godly wisdom believes what Romans 11, chapter, 30, or chapter 11, verse 33 says. This is what it says. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Godly wisdom is keyed in on the fact that God is all wise and his ways are unsearchable and they are deeper than we could ever know. Again, God's wisdom says to you and to me something that might sound sort of harsh. But it says this, you are not the center of it all. God is. And so in today's passage that we're going to look at, Solomon is going to help us learn about godly wisdom. And I'd like to start for us with verses 11 and 12 of chapter 9 under the heading, Time and Chance. Time and chance, which actually comes directly from verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says this. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, 
nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. What is Solomon saying here in chapter 9, verse 11? Well, once again, he is confronting us with one of the frustrations of life in a fallen world. What is that frustration? He's mentioning this to us, that we're frustrated with life in a fallen world by giving us five kinds of people that we would all expect to be winners, right? But sometimes they're losers, even though it doesn't make sense. Of course, nine times out of ten, the race is going to go to the fastest person. A fast person will generally beat a slower person, right? Nine times out of ten, the battle will go to the strongest person. Generally, the sensible person will know how to balance their budget, and so there will be food on the table. Most often, the brilliant person will get the best job. And the well-educated person will get all the breaks. But in our world, these things are not 100%, are they? They're not always true. Sometimes the fast person gets beat. What Solomon is pointing out to us is this. Human ability is no guarantee of success in life. Human ability is no guarantee of success in life. Solomon says time and chance can happen to all of these things. Now, it's important for us to know that Solomon is not saying, so you shouldn't try and you should just give up. Don't read into that. That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying that God isn't sovereign. We know from Ephesians 1.11, it says this, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. His point is that no matter how smart we are, or how fast we are, or how whatever educated we are, or how strong we are, there is no way for us to predict what is going to happen to us next. Why? Because you are not self-sufficient like you think you are. It's almost like Solomon has a twin brother in James. Look at what James says in, in uh, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. He says this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So Solomon is saying to us what James is also saying to us, and that is that you do not have the control that you think you have over your life. Worldly wisdom says this, strength and knowledge come with a guarantee. Worldly wisdom says, I'm in control of everything in my life. Solomon says, no matter how strong you are or how smart you are, you don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. He illustrates this for us in verse 12, where he says this, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 12, he says, For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So here Solomon is illustrating this truth that chance and time are out of our control with very vivid imagery from nature. We, we can see these things clearly, right? If you have ever fished, you know that fish are not looking to get caught by you. 
If you're like me, you've never caught a fish, in fact. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm the worst fisherman. <laughs> I, like, have stories just rolling through my head. I've fished for hours, and I've never caught a fish. I want that to go on record. But fish and birds do not willingly move towards your traps. Or at least in my case, they don't. They get caught, though, and then what do they do? They fight to get loose. That was not their goal, to get caught in life. If they were aware that there was a danger that they were going to swim or fly into, they would have gone in another direction. And Solomon's point here is this. Life is unpredictable. It may not be your goal, but it's unpredictable. You are not willingly moving towards failure sometimes, but misfortunes are inevitable and often escapable or inescapable. And in his mercy, what God is doing here is God is making a case for us again against our own self-sufficiency. So I think the right question here then would be this. Well, then how should we respond to this truth? Time and chance and that there are traps in life. How should we respond to this truth? How do we respond to God's sovereignty and his providence? Should we live believing that nothing matters and that the net is coming and so why should I even bother? Should we forsake all of our efforts towards knowledge and strength and betterment in our lives? I mean, should I even bother? Is it If it all comes down to time and chance, like Solomon says it does, is fatalism really the best and only honest option? Well, the quick answer is no. No way. Solomon has a different response for us in the following verses, and it's found in God-honoring wisdom, even though we may not know what is coming. Solomon starts here by proving that God-honoring wisdom is beneficial by first giving an example to an example to us of a man who had God-honoring wisdom. Look at verses 13 through 15. They say this. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. So this story that Solomon shares about what godly wisdom looks like is likely a true account or a historical event because it seems to have been something that Solomon had seen with his own eyes. But in his story, a poor wise man outsmarts a great king. We're not told who the man was. We're not told how he did it. And we likely will never be able to figure it out because verse 15 says no one remembered that poor man. In other words, he didn't collect a Nobel Peace Prize for what he did. He never became famous. But the fact remains that his wisdom saved the city that he lived in. What does this story have to do with godly wisdom? What does it have to do with time and chance? What does it have to do with all that we're talking about? Well, because Solomon saw the city's deliverance as something great, which is what verse 13 says, why was it great? What is he talking about? 
For Solomon, it taught an important lesson about godly wisdom that I think we can learn. The city in this story had almost no chance to survive. Its defenders were totally outnumbered. Their enemies were led by a powerful king who had the latest military technology. And humanly speaking, the city did not have a prayer. But, and I think this is really important for us to hear, the battle does not always belong to what we think is strong. Can we, can we stop here for a minute and just say, praise God that that is true. The battle does not always belong to what looks strong to us. In this particular case, one man knew exactly what to do. The Bible calls him a poor, wise man. One of the shocking realities of this story is that the man who saved this city was totally forgotten. And here again, we see the realism of Ecclesiastes. People in our world do not often remember God-honoring wisdom. Wisdom that isn't flashy or loud. Maybe a really good example would be Joseph in Genesis chapter 40. Maybe you guys remember the story, but he helped out Pharaoh's butler while they were both in prison. The butler had a dream and Joseph interpreted the dream for him. And because of that interpretation, it put the butler in good standing with Pharaoh and the butler got out of jail. And what Joseph thought was, well, for sure this man is going to help me out of jail too. But the butler forgot him completely. And although the wise man in the story, Solomon's story, personally failed to profit from his labors, his wisdom was not profitless for others or for this world. In fact, this poor man's wisdom impressed Solomon so much that he draws three different conclusions about God-honoring wisdom in verses 16 through 18. And what he tells us this morning is this, prioritize God-honoring wisdom with these three conclusions. Look for the first conclusion in verse 16. It says this, but I say that wisdom is better than might. That's the first conclusion. I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So Solomon says to us, wisdom is better than strength. Why? Well, because strength is short-lived. Maybe some of you are aware of this. For some of you, it's coming. You'll become more aware of this, that your strength is short-lived. But I'm becoming personally more aware of that every single year of my life. We lose strength as we advance in our years. But the wonderful truth is that we can gain wisdom as we grow older. And the biblical principle of godly wisdom would be this. Wisdom is better than might. And this truth is based on eternal principles. God-honoring wisdom lasts forever. Fortunately for the man in the story, the, the people listened to him and heard what he said. It does not always work that way, though. Sometimes people do not listen to the words of wisdom. Nevertheless, what Solomon is saying here is that brains are better than brawn. <laughs> this is all the more true when wise words are heeded. One of Solomon's main points in this section is that if we are wise, then we will listen to wise counsel. In that spirit, Solomon goes on then to prioritize God-honoring wisdom with a second observation about wisdom. In verse 16, he says that wisdom is better than strength. In verse 17, he says this, the words of the wise heard in quiet 
are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. So what verse 17 is doing here is it's describing to us a loud-mouthed leader. Sometimes leaders believe that the louder they are, the more effective they will be. If I yell, then people will, be, will call me passionate or they will pay attention to me. In fact, sometimes when leaders lead in volume or in frustration, it does produce something for them. It does work for a short time. It can be effective. But what Solomon is pointing out here to us is that that method is worldly wisdom. Solomon knows from the true story of this poor wise man that it's not a loud word that moves people's heart and changes the world for good. But it's a wise word heard in quiet. I, I, I have to be honest here with you guys that this verse is actually quite convicting for me. Why? Because it is so easy, and maybe this is true for some of you, maybe it's not, and maybe you will judge me harshly after this. That's okay. But it's so easy in my parenting to find myself ruling with a loud word. It's easy to rule our houses. It's easy to rule our businesses or our church business by taking control. It's easy to try and throw our weight around. And often when we lead in a controlling, weight-throwing way, it includes yelling or it includes anger. Solomon says that God-honoring wisdom is not like that. God-honoring wisdom is confident that wisdom speaks for itself, and as a result, quiet advice is always worth giving, even if it's not always followed. I think that there's probably some immediate application right here for a lot of us, and here it is. Is it possible that the words of verse 17 need to be applied in your home today? Could a few quiet words be more honoring to God than a lot of shouting? Is it possible to apply this principle to our relationships within the church today? Where honest and genuine conversation and communication generally help us to avoid heated conflict. Solomon makes his last observation then about God-honoring wisdom in verse 18 when he says this, Wisdom is better than weapons of war. Sounds a lot like wisdom is better than strength, doesn't it? But one sinner destroys much good. I want to focus on that, but one sinner destroys much good part. Solomon is saying this, as effective as godly wisdom is, a single person, one sinner, can cancel much good. Now, this can be kind of hard to understand, but saying one sinner destroys much good is like our common sayings in our day of um, one rotten apple ruins the whole barrel, or one bag egg spoils the whole omelet. This truth is actually an abiding principle throughout Scripture. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. It says this, do, not, or do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What does all of this mean for us in our context of God-honoring wisdom? What Solomon is doing here in verse 18 is he is pointing out to us 
The reality that godly wisdom always guards itself from being contaminated by sin, which will destroy it. Maybe a good example for us to sort of push on would be media. I love media. (laughs) Confession. I've made two confessions today. I love media. I do. I love to watch TV. I love reading articles online. I like to check out what's going on in the world. Media is not wicked in and of itself. TV is not wicked in and of itself. But I know this to be true because I know it to be true in my own life that many of us are being influenced by sin through the technology that we take in. In a book uh, called Reset that Pastor Dan and I are actually reading, uh, the author of that book says about media consumption this. He said, research indicates that Americans are consuming an average of 15 and a half hours of traditional and digital media each, would you like to fill in the blank, day. Did you hear that? 15 and a half hours of traditional and digital media each day. In the book that we're reading, each day was on the next page. And so when Dan said when he turned the page, he thought it was going to say each week. And it said each day, which is shocking. You and I could probably rightly say that for a lot of us, media has more influence over us and our children than godly wisdom does. And I'm not being legalistic when I say this, but Solomon's words in verse 18 are a warning to us about the reality that the influence of one sinner can have upon us. It doesn't take much. One sinner can destroy much good. In this passage today, Solomon is pointing out the reality that God's wisdom is greater than man's strength. In our desire to be in control and self-sufficient, we tend to rely on worldly wisdom, and Solomon says that's not a wise choice. You're not as strong as you think you are. Godly wisdom is what you and I really need. So what do we do with this passage of Scripture? How do we live, especially in a world where time and chance happen to all of us? I really don't think that any of us have an issue with what it looks like to be wise by the world's standards. But if we're a people who want to live and to know the satisfaction of a life lived for the glory of God, if we want to live life the way that we were created for life, if We know that self-sufficiency is a mirage. And if we know that self-sufficiency will never work for us, then how do we gain godly wisdom today as we live today? Having seen wisdom exemplified in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 by that poor wise man, and then having seen it prioritized in verses 16 through 18, what should our response be? This morning, how do we gain godly wisdom in life? I want to share with us, this is just going to be really practical, but four different principles that we can apply to our lives to gain godly wisdom for this life. The first one is this, know God's word, know God's word. It isn't overwhelmingly motivating, I know, for some of us to hear because we wish that there was another way to grow in God's wisdom. But the primary way to gain godly wisdom in this life, if you are a believer, is by reading and studying the Word of God. Look at Psalm 119 verse 
130, it says this, The unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. Now look at verse, or Psalm 119, verses 98 through 100. They say this, Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Basically, no one is born wise. Godly wisdom is not simply a function of your age, even. Godly wisdom comes from God's Word. A frequent question that I've heard as a pastor over the last 20 years is, which again is just crazy because I'm only 25, but why is it that the modern church is in America is in decline? People ask that question. Why do people stop coming to church? Why do young people not engage with the church? Should we be cooler? I mean, obviously not. <laughs> Should we have less windows in our room and more light control? Should we be more like our culture? Should we do more service projects? These are questions, and I think a lot of people would have a lot of different answers why the church is in decline. But I, I'm convinced of this, and I will argue with you all day long on it. I think the fundamental answer to this question is that the church has lost its power because it often does not stand on the authority of God's word. I just think it's true. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Immersion in God's word produces wisdom. Jesus himself prayed this prayer in John 17, 17. This is Jesus saying to God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So if you want to grow a heart of wisdom in a world that is unpredictable, read God's word. I know this is just a little bit of an aside, but Julianne and I have been studying through, we're doing a, a one-year Bible reading plan together this year. And so every morning at six, we do our Bible reading together before our kids start screaming at us. And it is, I mean, we have done this for years, but this year has been so life-changing. So life-changing. It's just God's word. And I'm in numbers. Have you guys ever read numbers? It's just God's word, though. And it's so life-changing, and it takes 15 minutes every morning. It's God's Word. I would encourage you. You can download a Bible app. It'll give you a plan. I will give you a plan. Read God's Word. Study God's Word. The second practical step is this. If you want, to be, if you want godly wisdom, you need to walk with the wise. Proverbs 13, verse 20 says this. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So we can develop godly wisdom by carefully selecting those who we walk with through life. This doesn't mean that you can't be friends with any non-Christian people. But who you walk with will affect how you walk for Christ. Those of us who want godly wisdom will choose our heroes based on the wisdom that they exhibit in their own personal lives. So again, God's wisdom comes from his word. It comes from who we walk with. And then the third thing is that the Bible would actually tell us to ask God for godly wisdom. 
Ask. Look at James 1, verse 5. It says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. According to this verse, God wants us to have his wisdom. He is delighted to give it to us when our hearts are set to receive it. If you go on in James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, it says this, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James is saying this, God knows the position of your heart. When you're committed to trusting him, when you are committed to obeying his word, then God will pour out his wisdom upon you. The last step that I have for us this morning in our desire to receive and live in the wisdom of God, I would say is absolutely the most important of all of the application points this morning. And here it is. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Give your life to Jesus Christ. The worship team can come on up. This is the only wisdom that can save you. This is not human wisdom. This is divine wisdom. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 25. It says this, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The the point of this verse is not that God is foolish or weak. The point is that even in his foolishness, he would be wiser than all of our wisdom. If we want to be wise, therefore, we need the wisdom of God. The primary way that God answers our prayer for wisdom is by giving us his son, Jesus Christ, who the Bible calls the very wisdom of God. I want to draw us back because this actually plays really well into Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I want to draw us back there this morning to see the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. Look again with me at verses 14 and 15. They say this. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. I want us to notice something this morning. This isn't a direct prophecy of Jesus, but I believe that there is considerable wisdom in you and I seeing Jesus Christ in these verses this morning. Verses 14 and 15, they perfectly illustrate the wisdom of God in Christ's saving work on our behalf. Think about that poor man, and now think about this. Jesus was as poor as anyone. Isaiah says that he was despised and rejected of men. Jesus was fully dependent upon the Father for his daily bread. Jesus was also wiser than anyone. We don't see Jesus screaming or shouting in the streets to get his point across. Yet he consistently and quietly, even when it was hard, brought wise words to the people around him. And by his wisdom, Jesus delivered the lost city of fallen humanity. 
Satan, and we could apply it to these verses here, was much like the great king in Solomon's story. Satan was coming against the world with all of the powers of hell. But Jesus delivered us all by himself. How? How did he do it? He did it through something that maybe seemed foolish at the time. It makes no sense. But God's wisdom in Christ actually turned out to be our salvation. Jesus saved our city by dying on the cross and then rising again. Listen really carefully to me. I'm almost done. It would be easy for our story to end the way that Solomon's did in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Where he said this, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I want us to hear this. Giving our lives to Christ in all of his wisdom is the wisest decision that any of us will ever make. All of Ecclesiastes, what Solomon has been doing is he's been laying out for us that life under the sun is unpredictable. Life without God is meaningless. But when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, our future is totally secure. We have certainty, finally. We know for certain that when we die, we will go to heaven. We are suddenly aware that whatever happens in this life, we have a loving God who will be with us to help us and to care for us. It is true that time and chance may happen to all of us, but they also happen under the control of God. And when we trust in him, we know that our lives are kept safe in the hands of our Savior, which is by far the wisest place for all of us to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word this morning. Lord, thank you for the story of wisdom. Thank you that you make it clear to us what um, your wisdom looks like, that it begins with the fear of you. It's in a life that honors you, and it's in a life that is given to you. And Father, thank you that even though life under the sun is unpredictable, that we can have certainty in our faith in you. God, we love you. We trust you. And we thank you so much again for this morning in Jesus' name.